Unless you are asleep, your face is constantly broadcasting a message. By Edward Iftady. In Medium.com. Using nonverbal skills to influence others. Nonverbal communication could significantly change the way your life unfolds. Amy Cuddy. In this article. A theory of how your brain interprets nonverbal messages. Three nonverbal influencing techniques to positively influence others. How to start controlling your nonverbal message. Believe it or not, perhaps 80% or more of all communication between people is nonverbal. The eye contact you make, the expression on your face, the tone of your voice, the posture of your body, the way you walk, it all has meaning. I want you to think about this for a moment, unless you are asleep. You are communicating an unspoken message to everyone who can see you and controlling this unspoken message might be the single most important tool you have to influence the thinking of others. Think about your wife or husband for a second. Were they happy with the last birthday gift you bought them? How do you know? I'm guessing it wasn't really the words they used. Regardless of what your partner said about your gift, you most likely interpreted the look on your partner's face and in their eyes the tone of voice they used and whether they leaned forward to inspect your gift more closely, or leaned back to start watching TV again. Bottom line, your nonverbal message matters, a lot. I think one of the biggest problems we have using nonverbal communication is that unlike verbal communication, nonverbal communication is largely automatic and controlled by our emotions and not our logic. In Amy Cuddy's dead talk, your body language shapes who you are. She shares a personal story about how in addition to hard work, controlling her nonverbal communication in graduate school ultimately helped her to become the professor and lecturer she is today. In her talk, Amy tells the audience about her research studying the connection between nonverbal communication and hormones in the body. We know that hormones control our mood and our mood is reflected unconsciously in our nonverbal communication. Amy wanted to know if this was only a linear relationship or a circular relationship. Amy concluded changing your body posture for only two minutes could in fact change your hormone levels and therefore your mood. Amy's findings have been disputed by other subsequent studies, but I think even intuitively we know Amy's findings are almost certainly correct to one degree or another. Keep your chin up. Stand up straight. Don't let them see you sweat. We've all had experiences where we have consciously taken control of our nonverbal reactions and by doing so, somehow it made us feel a little better. Moreover, there's real science behind it. When we have higher levels of testosterone in our blood, we feel more confident. In response, we tend to display more open, more dominant kinds of body postures. We spread out and take up more space. We look more relaxed and confident. On the other hand, when we have higher levels of cortisol in our system, we feel nervous, unsure, worried. In response, we tend to display much more closed body postures. We might cross our arms or our legs trying unconsciously to make ourselves smaller and we might display a worried or concerned facial expression. Not carefully matching nonverbal and verbal communication is one of the most overlooked influencing tools we have at our disposal. Think back to the last time you watched someone who was really nervous, trying to give a speech. It's painful to watch, right? Even if we know the person speaking is really intelligent, when they display that nervous, uncomfortable body language, we feel like something is wrong. We might even start doubting the accuracy of the speaker's message. On the other hand, watching speakers who display strong, confident body language seems a lot more believable. Although this might not seem logical, it makes a lot of sense from a feeling perspective. After all, if a speaker looks confident then true or not, 
we might simply assume they believe what they're saying and have confidence in the research they've done. Matching your verbal and nonverbal message is critical if you want to be credible and influential. A theory of how your brain interprets nonverbal messages. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to be invited to a workshop by two child psychologists from Colorado named Terry Levy and Michael Orleans. They were in Osaka talking about young children with different kinds of psychological problems brought on by abandonment or abuse. The seminar was fascinating in its own right, but it was their simple explanation of how our brains work that really was a breakthrough for me. You may have heard stories of feral children, children who survive in the wild with no human contact, who by a certain age are never able to completely learn to speak. In the past, many psychologists assumed emotional bonding. Trust and love also needed to be experienced by a certain age or the child was at risk of never being able to have normal, healthy, trusting, loving relationships with others. Terry and Michael, however, have had great success rehabilitating children of all ages. In fact, some of their most successful cases were actually young adults who were being treated for the first time. Due to their rehabilitation successes, the psychologists developed a theory concerning the part of the human brain referred to as the limbic system. The neocortex is evolutionarily speaking, the newest structure of the brain. The neocortex is responsible for many things, including speech, it is also responsible for our thinking and logic. I like to think of it as our conscious brain. This part of the brain requires many years of practice, schooling, and memorization to develop. If skills governed by this part of the brain are not practiced by a certain age, the neurons we were born with, start dying. This is why feral children, who don't get a chance to practice speaking, eventually lose the ability to create syntax forever by about the age of seven. Deep down at the base of our brain, connected to the spinal cord is our brainstem. The brainstem is responsible for regulating functions like your heartbeat, blinking, breathing and the fear response. This part of the brain is very old. So old, it resembles the brains of lizards and crocodiles, hence the nickname, crocodile or lizard brain. The brain stem requires no training at all. Like a crocodile, it works instinctively from birth and continues to operate exactly the way it is supposed to for our entire life. Sitting on top of the brain stem but underneath the neocortex, is the limbic system. This part of the brain is responsible for our emotions, memory, habits, and motivation. According to Terry and Michael, this part of the brain has some of the characteristics of both the neocortex and the brain stem. Like the neocortex, this part of the brain requires some training or input for it to function correctly. However, like the brain stem, the limbic system seems to be at least partially pre-wired at birth. So for example, babies will automatically cry or smile at their mothers. Their mothers in response attend to the baby and smile back at the baby. This positive feedback strengthens the relationship between child and parent and eventually leads to feelings like love and trust. Small children who don't get this feedback due to abuse or abandonment aren't able to develop the limbic system properly. Later in life, this predictably leads to antisocial behavioral problems of all sorts. However, according to Terry and Michael, the ability to receive and understand emotional input, or nonverbal input of all kinds, is never lost. In fact, by implementing a series of exercises with abandoned children designed to develop trust, Terry and Michael found they could slowly strengthen the limbic system. Over time, children were able to start feeling trust, start building friendships and ultimately, form normal, healthy, loving relationships. After hearing Terry and Michael's explanation, 
many of my past experiences suddenly made a lot more sense. As I mentioned earlier, I built a reputation for handling difficult customers. One of the techniques I developed when working in the hotel business was to ignore bizarre or aggressive or irrational behavior. I found from trial and error that if I responded calmly, as though the behavior or the comment was completely normal and I didn't react negatively, difficult people very quickly would calm down and listen to reason. In fact, when I stick to this strategy, I have found the most difficult or erratic behaving people I've worked with often become not only very easy to work with but even strong allies and advocates in a relatively short space of time. I think I had incorrectly assumed difficult people were accustomed to angry responses or isolation or distance from others and that by my continuing to communicate, difficult people felt some feeling of acceptance. However, now I think the chemical reaction is much deeper. I now believe I am tapping into the pre-wired limbic systems of these people. By giving neutral or even positive nonverbal feedback in response to anger or strange or inappropriate behavior, I don't trigger a logical response. I trigger an emotional response deep in the limbic system. Perhaps this technique triggers a positive feeling difficult people don't get to commonly feel or perhaps have never really felt before because of the reaction their actions usually elicit from others. I want to be clear, Terry and Michael have developed a theory. This has not been definitively proven to be science fact. Nevertheless, the theory is more than intriguing. It appears we never lose the ability to receive nonverbal input, regardless of age or culture. I readily admit that hand language changes from culture to culture, but very basic nonverbal input is universal. For example, a smile is met with a smile, anywhere in the world. I think this information is a massive game changer at work when you are trying to change the perceptions and ultimately influence people around you. It's a game changer because the vast majority of people do not consider their nonverbal communication. This makes a lot of sense because as I mentioned above. Nonverbal communication is largely an unconscious reaction of how we feel at any given moment. Unless you take the time to think about your nonverbal communication, your limbic system will automatically take control. To begin positively influencing others consistently, you need to immediately take control of your nonverbal communication in three key ways. Three nonverbal influencing techniques. First, you need to harness the power of nonverbal communication to control fear and anxiety. If you remember from the chapter, the trouble with money, social or physical pressure situations prompts your brain stem to trigger more cortisol to be released into your body. Remember, cortisol not only makes you feel more worried, it also clouds your judgment and your creativity. Fear and anxiety can easily make you lose control of your nonverbal message. As a first step, whenever you feel stress or worry, it's important you take a second to calm yourself and carefully consider what your nonverbal message looks like. If you don't, you run a serious risk of displaying anxiety on your face and in your body language. Now, everyone within visual range of you can see your fear. They instantly know you are uncomfortable in your current situation and likely out of your depth. Obviously, this has a strong negative influence on the way people see you. You look like a worrier not a leader. So how do we relax when under pressure? I have three steps to get you started. First, realize everyone is nervous or uncomfortable in difficult situations. You know that super confident person in the office who seems impervious to stress? I guarantee they feel stressed out, just like you. The difference is Mr. Confident is aware of his nonverbal message and he's controlling that message. With practice, you can do the same thing. Keep this message in mind when you are in stressful situations to help yourself calm down. Follow Amy Cuddy's advice and immediately get into a high power pose, 
Sit up and make strong eye contact. Get up out of your chair and stand. Even better, take a walk. Even if you are feeling very uncertain, as Amy says, fake it until you make it. Get into your favorite power pose and let your pose reduce your cortisol levels and increase your testosterone levels. In only a few minutes, you will start to feel the influence of your hormones kicking in, making you feel more comfortable and more confident. If you have more time, think through and write down all of the worst-case scenarios of your stressful situation. By writing your worries down, you are purposely shifting from a fight-or-flight response triggered by your brain stem, to a more logical approach, using your neocortex. Focusing on logic helps your brain take away the emotional content of the problem that's driving you toward anxiety and fear. Worrying actually depletes the working memory in your prefrontal cortex. This takes away important processing power you need to accomplish difficult tasks or solve difficult problems. Much like a computer with too many windows open, your brain has fewer and fewer resources to focus on the actual problem. According to Son Bylock, a researcher at the University of Chicago, this focus on worrying can actually make you choke under the pressure. Worry can make you fail even at tasks you are normally very good at. Son knows what she's talking about. She was almost certainly on her way to joining the U.S. women's soccer Olympic team when she choked under the pressure of playing in front of a scout from the Olympic team. The experience was so profound it guided her to her current research. Start using these techniques today. Even if you've chaired tons of meetings or given hundreds of presentations, try these techniques anyway. I've had to present and chair meetings regularly through my entire career. If I present in front of 100 people or for only one person on a teleconference call, I always go through a simple three-step checklist before I start. Mental check-in, how am I feeling right now? Is there anything I've overlooked? If this conversation-slash-presentation-slash-meeting goes sideways on me, what's my contingency plan to maintain my cool and keep moving forward? Anticipate difficult questions or objections. Have I written down responses for all potential difficult questions and put the notes somewhere close by so I can access them quickly if I find myself in a tight spot and can't remember what to say? Stand up, walk around, maybe get a coffee. The point is I'm trying to loosen up and get that testosterone flowing a little. Follow these simple steps consistently, and I guarantee more confident, more professional results. Even if you've presented for years, try running through your presentation 10 minutes before you start, thinking of possible problems or objections. I like to do this standing up and walking around a bit rather than power posing. Come into your next meeting or presentation with 10 to 15% more energy, volume and enthusiasm than usual. Not 50% more energy. You don't have to come in shouting and waving your arms around. Even so, if you don't look and sound interested in the meeting you're chairing or the presentation you're delivering, why should anyone else be interested? Words are only painted fire, a look is the fire itself. Mark Twain Enthusiasm spreads. Energy is contagious. Believe me, your audience will unconsciously notice the difference and you will get better energy from your audience in return. Try asking a few of your friends if they noticed a difference in your meeting or presentation style. I'll bet they won't be able to put their finger on what you've changed, but they'll say your delivery was better. Second, you need to harness the power of nonverbal communication to craft yourself a new inviting, confident, competent image. Think back to the last chapter in the advice given by Carol Dweck, be consistent. Consistently craft a purposeful nonverbal message, every day, all day long. Like learning to control anxiety, 
consistently crafting a positive nonverbal message also takes time before it becomes a habit. But with practice, this technique too becomes easier and more automatic. So, what should that nonverbal message be? When you're walking to work Monday morning or on the train on the way to work, what do you look like? Is your head down and are your shoulders drooping or are you walking with purpose and looking like someone important who's going somewhere important? When you walk into the office in the morning, do you stumble to your desk, slump into your chair and turn on your PC with a blank expression, or do you greet everyone you meet warmly, turn on your PC with a smile on your face and start organizing your desk for the coming workday? When you go for a coffee break, do you try to find a corner all by yourself so you can put your head on the table for a couple of minutes of rest or do you try to engage your co-workers, regardless of rank or position, in conversations about their weekend or projects they're currently working on? When you see co-workers you haven't seen for a while, or even on the street when not at work, do you try to avoid eye contact and pretend you're busy or do you make a point of waiting for their eye contact before waving or nodding a greeting to them? When your boss is reviewing your work negatively, do you roll your eyes, fight back? argue, and make excuses. Instead, try giving a neutral, unemotional response. Write down the feedback, ask clarification questions and ask for suggestions. Always keep in mind that particularly negative feedback, although unpleasant, is one of the fastest ways to improve your performance. So relax, listen objectively and try to see the positive in the message you're receiving. Start paying attention to your nonverbal message today. Take a look at yourself in the mirror before you leave for work. Do you look presentable, serious, and successful? Take a glance at yourself in a window as you walk by on the way to work to check your posture and your gait. Do you look like someone with purpose, someone with somewhere important to be? As you approach work, you might run into a coworker. Are you going to be surprised again and pretend you didn't see them or are you going to be prepared with a smile and a wave and maybe even some kind of greeting? When you walk into the office, do you look like a zombie shuffling to your office or do you look inviting and approachable? Are you avoiding eye contact or inviting it? Third, we need to use nonverbal communication to acknowledge others around us to show them we actually care. In seminars, I like doing a little two-step role play to demonstrate the power of nonverbal communication in the office. In step one, I ask a volunteer to pretend they've been working a week on a report I ask them to compile for me. The volunteer comes to deliver the report and predictably, even though it's only a role play, the volunteer usually looks proud of the fake report they are delivering to me. They usually explain all the work they put into the report and some of the difficulties they had getting the report finished by the deadline. Finally, they purposely pass me the fake report. I make direct eye contact with the volunteer and thank them sincerely with a smile on my face. Without looking at the report I toss it unceremoniously onto the desk beside me and turn back to my PC to start working again. Predictably, when asked about their feelings at that moment, the volunteer expresses frustration, anger or disappointment. I look them in the eye, I said thank you. So what's the problem? The message isn't consistent. All the good work my eye contact, my thank you, and smiling has done is completely undone by my lack of acknowledgement when I toss the report onto the desk. All nonverbal communication matters, all of the time. Everything you do has a subconscious meaning that will be instantly interpreted by everyone witnessing your actions. Giphy. Smiling without your eyes, a thin half smile, rolling your eyes, fake smiling while looking away in a terrible attempt to cover your frustration, tapping your foot on the floor or tapping your desk while waiting for someone to shut up so you can speak. All of these actions are poison, undermining your reputation with your co-workers.
Identify these negative behaviors and eliminate them. Start acknowledging the message your coworker is bringing to you. Remember, whether you agree or not, your coworker thinks the message is important and you need the information, so take the time to respectfully listen. When someone wants to talk to you, stop reading your email and turn your chair toward the speaker. Better yet, stand up. Make direct eye contact and listen. When someone is going on a little too long in a meeting or presentation, stop rolling your eyes or making subtle hurry-up signs with your face or hands. Make direct eye contact and listen. When someone makes a comment, don't just start speaking about something else. Acknowledge the comment with at least, thanks for your comment. Better yet, try saying something about your co-worker's comment before moving on to your own idea. If you want to be a great leader, remember to treat all people with respect at all times. For one, because you never know when you'll need their help. And two, because it's a sign you respect people, which all great leaders do. Simon Sinek In the second step of the role play, I do everything exactly the same as I mentioned above, until I receive the report from the volunteer. When I receive the report, I take 10 seconds to flip through it and I make one positive comment about the font, or a graph, or the thickness of the report before turning and carefully placing it on my desk. Remember Carol Dweck's advice about praising process? I then assure the volunteer that I will give the report my full attention as soon as I get a chance. Guess what? The volunteer leaves my office reporting satisfaction, pleasure, even happiness. That's the feeling we want to feel ourselves at work, so why aren't we trying to spread that feeling to others in our office? The whole concept of pay it forward only works if someone takes the first step, accepting they may give to another and never be paid back. Note to self. Acknowledgement isn't common practice in my office. Should I take the first step and acknowledge others around me at work? Of course, I should. Even if others continue to not properly acknowledge me, my co-workers will be positively influenced by my actions. My colleagues will see me as more patient, more professional, friendlier. That's exactly the kind of image I'm trying to cultivate for myself and that's exactly the example I want to others to emulate. How to start controlling your nonverbal message. Who do you admire? Watch a video of that person. Copy their nonverbal messages. Use a mirror. This week, add two to three seconds of eye contact to everyone you meet. When you walk around the office this week, make a conscious effort to stand straight and hold your head high. When you sit at your desk or on a break, straighten your posture and avoid slumping in your chair. If this article helped you, pass it on to someone you care about. I'm Edward Alexander of today founder of Edward Alexander Consulting and author of Surviving Work. www.businesscommunicationcoaching.com The Root Cause of Employee Demotivation What is Killing Productivity and Making People Suffer at Work? Medium.com